Let me start with a question. Do you have a hero? Do you have a hero? Recent times, there have been some really good films and TV productions celebrating some great heroes. Here are just a few. Winston Churchill, who vanquished a deadly foe and smoked some great cigars. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, who emancipated slaves and led a nation. Emmeline Pankhurst, born right here in Moss Side, who secured and, and campaigned for the women's right to vote which was only 90 years ago. Can you believe that? Now, we're right to celebrate these heroes, their work, their fine achievements. We love stories of heroes, don't you? Their fight to overcome some grave injustice or deal with a really dangerous enemy. It gives us hope, I think, in life that someone's going to come and sort it all out. And yet, Churchill may have vanquished a deadly foe, but there are still wars, threats of war, and many deadly foes. Abraham Lincoln may have uh, ended slavery, but there are still many thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in slavery today. Uh, In fact, it's been calculated there are more people in slavery at the moment than in the entire history of the transatlantic slave trade. Women may have the vote, but women are still subjected to bullying and uh, injustice and abuse of the most invasive kind in our culture, as we're becoming aware of in the last couple of years. We need heroes, but our heroes are never big enough. Is this why there are so many superhero films being made? You need someone who's even bigger. Now, ancient people were just like you and me. Take Augustus, the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Today was Augustus' birthday. We'll be bringing a cake out later on. (laughs) Caesar Augustus was a strong man of great ability. He had a relentless drive for power. He became Caesar by crushing every rival. The last opponent that he had was Mark Antony, who was married to Cleopatra, Queen of Egypt. She looked just like Elizabeth Taylor. After a devastating military defeat, Antony and Cleopatra committed suicide, and so Augustus became Caesar. Augustus turned Rome from a republic to an empire, and he appointed himself as the first emperor. And he said he had brought peace and justice to the whole world. He declared that his father, Julius Caesar, was a god. And that meant that he was the son of God. What did Augustus achieve, this great hero? An inscription was made during his reign, and it said this, The birthday of the god, Augustus, September 23rd, was the beginning for the world of the glad tidings that have come to people through him. The birthday of Augustus was the beginning for the whole world of the good news or gospel that has come to people through him. And the same inscription, they found this, archaeologists have found it, says that Augustus was a saviour for us who made wars to cease and created order everywhere. Did he really achieve all of that? Of course not. But... During Caesar's reign, a baby boy was born in an obscure corner of the empire in occupied Palestine. His family were Jewish, and he grew up learning a carpenter's trade. He was a joiner. Age 30, he became a public teacher, gathered some followers around him, and went around teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God and performing miracles. Three years later, he was executed by the Romans, 33 years old. To me, that looks like a very short life. Yet, his followers claimed that he'd risen from the dead and that he'd predicted it multiple times. They said that he'd gone to heaven. 
They said that he was ruling the world now at God's right hand, the place of power. They said that one day he's going to come back to judge the whole world in justice. But they said that for now there's a time of amnesty to make peace with him and join his kingdom. They said that his death was not an accident, but it was a sacrifice that paid for the sins of countless people. They said that he was willing to forgive anyone, that his grace and mercy were astonishing. They said that this hero is worth betting your life on. And they did. Many of them gave their lives for his cause because they believed that he was the one true hero that the world had ever known. His name was Jesus. Now, a few years after Jesus had died, risen and ascended, some of his followers were preaching in another part of Europe and a riot kicked off. People didn't like what they were saying. They dragged them before the city authorities and they shouted about these preachers, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. They've turned the world upside down. Now they were so nearly right. The world was being turned upside down. But not by those men. But by Jesus Christ. Now today we're starting a series on the Gospel of Mark. And we plan to go right through this book. We'll be in it a long time. Most scholars regard this as the earliest of the four Gospels. And an old tradition, a very old tradition, says that Mark was the companion of the Apostle Peter. And that Mark went round with him. He was kind of his bag carrier. And Mark wrote down Peter's preaching and crafted a book. So it's an amazing thought that we may be reading, basically, Peter's sermons. And it has a kind of breathless, uh, excited, punchy quality about it. It's the shortest of the Gospels, and it's very powerful. But let me just say as we start, this Gospel, Mark, is not just another book. We're not just starting to preach through Mark and then we'll do something else afterward. This is the story that changes everything. Because it's the story of Jesus. It was the story that changed everything for those original followers who heard his voice and followed him by the Lake of Galilee. And it's the story that will change everything for you too, if you will let it. And today we're just looking at those first 13 verses. It's kind of a prologue. It gets it all started. And it's great because right at the start of this gospel... The author gives us the keys. Here's my keys. I've got three keys on here. And uh, Mark, the author, doesn't want to wait to the end of the book to tell you the mystery. You know how you get some books that are trying to find who killed that person. And you look at the end of the book and they, t- they, they, they find it out. Now Mark doesn't, doesn't save any secrets from you, the reader. Uh, right at the start, he gives us three keys to understand Jesus. Now, it's funny because all through the book... People are asking, who is this? Everybody asks it all through. Who is this? Jesus turns up and and speaks and teaches in the most extraordinary way. And the religious experts sort of look at each other and say, who is this? Jesus goes uh, to his hometown where they think they know him. And they see what he does and how he speaks. And they say, isn't this the carpenter's son? Who is this? His own followers, on one occasion, he calms a storm with a word in, on a boat. He's on, they're on a boat and the storm kicks off and he calms it with, with a word. He says, get down. And the sea goes still. And the, his followers say, who is this? 
And even his own family come to get him and say, what's going on with him? We don't understand who he is anymore. Now you get the answer right at the start of the book about who he is. So you're going to be frustrated with all these people as we read through Mark. Oh, why don't they get it? It's because they didn't know. Here's who Jesus is. Look with me, please, at verse 1. The beginning of the good news, or the gospel, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So there you've got an identification. Jesus is his name. It's the, uh, in Greek, it's the name Joshua. It means God saves. Jesus, and he's the Messiah. And if you see in our church Bible, there's a little uh, letter A that shows you the footnote. And the footnote says, you can translate it, Jesus Christ. Because Messiah, which is Hebrew, and Christ, which is Greek, both mean the same thing. And it means the anointed one. Anointing was where they poured some oil over the head of someone who was being made the king. Or brought into a special role like a prophet. And anointing was pouring out the oil. So they're saying, he is the Messiah, the anointed one, the special one, the chosen one, the one who will serve God in our generation. And it says he is the son of God, the son of God, which was a name for the king. Okay, so there you have it. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. Now that's the headline, okay? But now it gets unpacked with those three keys that I mentioned. And here are the three things and I, they all begin with M. I was inspired by our Korean preacher last week who managed to come up with five P's. Well, I've only got three M's. But these keys, if you can hang on to them, put them in your pocket, they will give you a key to who Jesus is. The majesty of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, and the meekness of Jesus. The majesty, the mission, and the meekness. So, firstly, the majesty of Jesus. Now, whenever any, someone really important visits a city or a school, people get ready. They tidy up. They put on their best clothes. Some of them have their hair done. They clean the streets. And they generally prepare everything. There's a saying in this country that wherever she goes, the queen smells fresh paint. And I think it's probably true. Now this story begins with a guy called John the Baptist. His role is to prepare the way. He's preparing the way for a VIP. It says that in verse 3. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. You see, he's not just preparing the way for a VIP or even royalty. He's preparing the way for the Lord, for God himself. That's why this John is such a big deal. John is the guy who goes ahead of an important person with a loud hailer. And says, clear the roads, please, clear the roads, coming through. Clean up your act, get ready. He's coming soon. So John has this tremendously important role in the Bible. He's a hinge figure between the Old and New Testaments. He's a messenger who announces, God is coming, let's get ready. But what would you think of a messenger who was dressed like John? Look at what it says about him there in verse 6. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. Camel hair coat and a leather belt around his waist. This is retro. This is the kind of outfit that my oldest son buys in vintage shops in the northern quarter and sells for a fortune on eBay. Camel hair, camel's hair. Now John also has this very interesting diet, locusts, 
High protein, low fat, by the way. And wild honey. What is going on? Now, when the first readers and the first people saw and heard about John, they knew exactly what this was all about. Just like if I said to you, uh, there's someone dressed in blue, wearing a red cape, with a big letter S on his chest, and red underpants worn on the outside. You would say, oh, it's Superman. See, people hear this about the hairy camel's garment and the leather belt, and they think, ah, it's Elijah. This is from the Old Testament, 2 Kings, chapter 1, verse 8. These guys, this king is asking these guys, who was this person? And they say, well, he had a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. And the king said, ah, that was Elijah the Tishbite. It's true that John's wardrobe is rather vintage. He looks like the guy who lost, didn't take his uh, sports kit to school and had to find something in the cupboard. <laughs> but for the ancient readers, this is deliberate because John wants to look like an old school prophet. He wants people to make the connection between him and Elijah because even his clothes are part of the message. And here's the connection that he wants to make. This comes from the last book in our Old Testament. The closing words of the Old Testament. I'll read it out, you don't have to look at it. Malachi, chapter 4, sometimes called the Italian prophet Malachi. Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Malachi, this is God speaking through Malachi. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and terrible day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of their parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Now, what you get there is is a warning right at the end of the Old Testament that God's coming back and it will be a great and terrible day. But before he comes, he's going to send a prophet just like Elijah and he will warn people and turn them, their hearts, to be loving again. Or else God will come and strike the land with destruction. So can you see now why John was so successful in his ministry? It says all the people of Jerusalem and the whole countryside went out to him. Do you know why? Because they think this could be it. This could be that Elijah and the great and terrible day of the Lord might be just around the corner. And now we know we really need to clean our act up. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 says this, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Does that sound familiar? We just read it. It's in Mark chapter 1, verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. I know it says Isaiah, not Malachi. We'll explain that in a minute. So John is deliberately acting like a wilderness prophet. A wild, hairy guy. uh, Working out near the River Jordan, saying, God is coming back. Prepare the way for him. Make the paths straight. Sort your house out. Wake up. And he preaches a baptism of repentance, it says, for the forgiveness of sins. That repentance is turning around, changing your mind, changing the direction of your life. A baptism of repentance. In other words, John is saying to the whole nation, you're dirty. You're unclean. You're morally impure. You're not what you should be. You need washing. And baptism... Going into the water, being plunged underneath it and taken out is a physical symbol, a sign of something that is happening spiritually, the need to be cleansed. 
And John's ministry had a very powerful impact because everyone went out to him. But this quote here in verse 2 and 3 is a composite of, of more than one Bible quotation. This was a technique used by the Jewish people uh, around about the time of Jesus and, and before. And they would combine two or three quotes from different parts of, of the Old Testament and they'd, they'd connect them together in order to make people think and make people go back and look at the original sources and make them join the dots and make the connection themselves. You see, Mark isn't just quoting Malachi here. He's also quoting the great prophet Isaiah. And he draws our attention to that by saying, it's written in Isaiah the prophet. And this is what Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 says. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And this is in the context of a, a scene in Isaiah of global restoration, of God coming and bringing about a new day, a new beginning for the whole world. And the voice is calling out, in the wilderness make the straight path so that God can come right through. So this is absolutely huge. Mark is saying that the messenger prepares the way for God. And John, the Baptist's main message is this. It's not about me. It's not about me. He says in verse 7, After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now you know in the ancient world, sandals were not like your lovely Birkenstocks. They were pretty scuzzy items. People are walking around in dry, dusty conditions. There's wild dogs roaming around. There's no public sewage system. Don't need to say any more than that. Sandals weren't great. And so you went into someone's house, the first thing you do is take off your sandals at the door. And John says, do you know what? I'm not actually even worthy to stoop down and to untie the sandals of this one who's coming. He's so much more powerful than I. He's overwhelming. I'm just preparing the way for him and then I'm going to get out of the way. And so we're thinking, this is quite a build-up. Who is this powerful one going to be? John's not even fit to tie his sandals. The one who everyone should make way for. And there it is in verse 9. You ready? Here he is. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. Ah, okay. Jesus. Do you know, um, Nazareth is, is kind of a nowhere town. It's like... Nowhereville. It's in the north of the country and it was far away from the action. You know, Israel at that time, a little bit like other countries where there's a powerful capital city in the south and the north gets overlooked. Not making any comments here about Manchester, which is the capital of the north, by the way. Um, here we have, the, okay, so this is what we've been waiting for. This, um, just a man shows up in the crowd and like everyone else, he gets baptised. Oh, Right, okay. But just think for a moment about what's been said about Jesus. His majesty. The Old Testament prophets said, this is the hero that we need. The one who will vanquish our deadly foes. The one who will emancipate slaves. The one who will bring justice to societies. 
This is the one we need to prepare for. Watch out. Wake up. He's coming. And in walks Jesus. He's the king. Remember, that's what Messiah means, the anointed one. So that's the first thing we learn about Jesus from Mark, is that he's his majesty. He's the special king, the one coming in God's name. Secondly, we learn about Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission. You know, in any good hero story or hero film, there's a job to be done. There's a problem to be solved. There's an enemy to fight. There's a mountain to climb. There's a crisis to resolve. People are in trouble. They need help. There's danger on all sides. There appears to be no solution. How is the hero going to deal with it? And Jesus has that kind of impossible mission too. And this is the second key we have, Jesus' mission. It's first of all described in verse 8, if you look with me at that verse. Verse 8 says, uh, John says, I baptise you with water... But he's going to baptise you with the Holy Spirit. He's comparing his ministry, baptising with water, with what this coming one will do. It's as if John is saying, look, you guys, gather round. I know I called you all to come down to the Jordan River and repent of your sins. And I know you're being washed in the river, baptised for the forgiveness of sins. But did you really think that a dip in this dirty river is going to solve your spiritual problems? Did you really think that, that that can give you a new heart that, that you need? That it can give you the moral centre and help you make the right choices? Do you really think that being baptised can change your will, your motivations, your thought life? Of course not. You need something more. You need a lot more. And that something more is the Holy Spirit. Now, the Old Testament prophets had told of a time predicted in the future when God would pour out his spirit on his people and that that would start a new era. Joel chapter 2 predicts a time, a great time, of God's salvation. It says, God will pour out his spirit on everyone, young and old, men and women, boys and girls, everyone, so they can all know him for themselves. Jeremiah chapter 31 connects this future time to a fresh time of forgiveness when God will remember our sins no more. He promises to make a new covenant with the people so that they will all know God personally. Ezekiel chapter 36 promised that God will give people a new heart and a new spirit so that they will be moved internally to to love God and obey him and do it for his sake. And there after that, there's a wonderful picture of human flourishing. So Joel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, all of them are promising this future time. They don't know when it's going to be. It'll be the era of the Spirit. And now, John the Baptist says, Jesus will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is not a liquid. He is a spirit. That means a non-physical being. But baptism is an image of being immersed, being plunged into something, being surrounded by it and taken over by it. And when Jesus himself comes forward to be baptised, it says that he receives the Holy Spirit. There it is if you want to look with me at verse 10. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now it wasn't a dove, but it was like that. Jesus sees God's Holy Spirit coming down on him because now at the start of his public ministry Jesus is the one who can bring the Holy Spirit 
and convey him to human beings. All that was promised by those prophets of old is coming true now that Jesus is here. Baptism in the Holy Spirit is when Jesus Christ becomes Lord of your life and you receive the Holy Spirit and then you get a new heart and you, you know God for yourself. Let me just pause and ask, has that happened to you? Has it happened to you? You know, you can know a lot about the Bible and not actually have the Holy Spirit. You can be a Bible expert. Lots of people were. They were called the Pharisees. They never received the Holy Spirit. They never really knew God, although they knew a lot about him. Has Jesus Christ become Lord of your life? Not just somebody you know about, but somebody you know personally, you walk with, you love, and you submit to and obey. And have you received the Holy Spirit? It doesn't mean you had a, 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 some sort of ecstatic experience. Some people do, some don't. I didn't. But I do know that my life began to change at some point in my mid-teens. My conscience became awakened, and I started wanting to obey God and know more about him. Has it happened to you? Because it may be that there's somebody here who actually is on the brink, right on the brink of the kingdom of God, but they've never asked God to forgive them. They've never asked the Holy Spirit to come into their life, and they could do that right now. It could be you. And if it is, I'd love to talk to you and pray with you after this service. Jesus can do that. He can change even the hardest heart. Turn your character around, make you sweeter, more lovely. Not overnight, over a lifetime. He can do all of that because he is God's son. Look with me at verse 10 and 11. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending upon him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This language about heaven being opened is really violent language. It's not just like a little door opens in heaven and a dove comes down. It's like ripping apart. It's like heaven is torn open. And we might think, well, maybe that's tearing heaven open so that the way is clear for us to get to God. But actually, I think it's the other way around. I think at this moment, the heavens are ripped apart so that God can come to us. Back to the prophet Isaiah, who Mark loves so much. Isaiah 64, verse 1. Isaiah says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, God, that you would come and be with us, because if you were here, everything would be, would be right. All would be well, and all manner of things would be well, if God could be with us. And Isaiah never saw that day, but they do here. The heavens would rent, and God is coming down, because here he is in the person of Jesus. The Spirit comes down on him, and God the Father speaks speaking to Jesus and he says some some words that are, are steeped in the Bible Psalm 2 you are my son it's a royal proclamation it's an enthronement you are my son whom I love hints at Genesis chapter 22 Abraham talking about Isaac the son that God gave him the special son who God tested Abraham by saying you've got to go up on a mountain and sacrifice him And then God stepped in at the last moment. Abraham said of him, the son I love. And here is God speaking to Jesus, the father speaking to the son, 
with the Spirit resting on it. You are the Son whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. This is where Jesus is, as it were, enthroned. What a wonderful picture of the nature of our God. A trinity of three persons. My daughter was asking me lots of theological questions this week. It's been great. It's been testing. She's asking me about the age of the earth and how did God make the world and uh, all these sorts of things. And then yesterday she came out with another question. Wasn't God lonely before he made the world? Well, thankfully I did know the answer to this one. It's No, God has never been lonely because he's a trinity. Father, Son and Spirit. An eternity of joyful, loving communion. God is always happy. And so my daughter said, well, why did, she make the, why did he make the world then? And I think the answer is he made the world to share his happiness, to share his joy, so that he would get more glory through it. Right at the start here then of Jesus' public ministry, he receives the Spirit of God. He hears the voice of God the Father affirming him in his mission. He is God's chosen king, come to put the world to rights. So we've had two keys. The majesty of Jesus, the mission of Jesus. And finally, the meekness. The meekness of Jesus. Meekness is an old word. We don't use it so often these days. Um, It means humble. It means gentle. It means obedient. These aren't qualities that we tend to praise much in our culture, sadly. That's maybe why we don't say meek very often. But meekness is a virtue in the Bible. And Jesus is meek. He's gentle and obedient and humble, even though he's incredibly powerful and majestic. See those two things put together? Amazing. What is the first thing that the Holy Spirit does after coming to Jesus? Verse 12. What would we expect? You know, let's go and storm. Storm the gates. You know, come on, Jesus, let's do it. Let's take down the enemies. Let's go to Rome and kick Caesar Augustus out. Or whichever Caesar it was at that point. Yet, no, what does the Spirit do? Right at the start of his mission, he drives him out into the wilderness. He drives him out. This is not a gentle leading with tranquil music, you know, somebody strumming an acoustic guitar in the background with their eyes closed. This is a word that is used for expulsion. The Holy Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness. And he's out there for 40 days. I mean, it's terrible. He's out in the wilderness on his own for 40 days, being tempted by Satan and surrounded by wild animals. What a start to his great ministry in the desert. What does this teach us? The power of God appears in the desert, unseen by people, tested to the limit, suffering, facing the fiercest opponent, the spiritual enemy, the accuser, Satan, And Jesus must pass through the desert alone, no other people around, except for Satan and wild beasts, and it says the angels help him. How does Satan work? A lot of people in our culture are uncomfortable talking about Satan. And certainly we mustn't be the kind of superstitious Christians who see devils under every bed or in every weird circumstance that you can't explain. But the Bible talks about evil forces that explain a lot of the evil in the world. The really horrible, perverse stuff that you almost can't explain. Well, there's a category here of evil forces who are opposed to God and opposed to our good as well. 
And Satan in the Bible often works through testing, accusing, putting doubts in people's minds, bringing them down, making them uncertain, making them doubt God's love and goodness. And so Jesus is subjected to this for 40 days on his own, alone, and he passes the test. Now that number 40 is quite important in the Bible. Israel were 40 years in the wilderness because they disobeyed God. They wouldn't keep his law and trust him. Moses was 40 days up Mount Sinai receiving the law of God, which he brought down to the disobedient people. But here is Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness, and he trusts God and obeys him. And then he brings a new law, a new covenant to us, a new agreement that we can enter into. So what does this teach us as we, as we finish? And soon we're going to uh, take the Lord's Supper together. What does this teach us? I think it shows us that God, the kingdom of God comes in, in disarming ways, hidden ways, unspectacular from, from, uh, in, in the wider world. It comes through ordinary people who come from nowhereville, which is in the middle of nowhere. Jesus' road to glory is a road marked with suffering. His public enthronement is going to take him to a cross where he will be nailed on a Roman torture instrument under a sign that says the King of the Jews. And he'll be crowned there with a crown made not of gold but of thorns and surrounded by people mocking and casting lots for his robe, the only thing he owns. See, the way of God's kingdom coming is through testing, obscurity, suffering. And if that is Jesus, then what about us? Christian friend, what about you? If that is what has to happen for Jesus to go through to glory, can his followers be given an easy pass now? I wonder if you ever find yourself in pain or illness or suffering or struggling with depression or some injustice that's happened to you or those that you love. Uh, you find you're struggling in life, things aren't how they turn, you hoped they were going to turn out, you're disappointed. But you find yourself thinking, well, why, where is God now? It wasn't supposed to be like this. I thought well, if I trusted Jesus, then everything would be okay. But now it's like this. I can't pay the bills. Children have gone off the rails. I'm struggling. Well, let me just, let us end this message with the image of Jesus in the wilderness, alone with only the word of God to hang on to, still trusting and obeying God. Can his followers not walk the same path he did? And perhaps he's led you to the wilderness, friends, that you're in right now, in order that you can get closer to him. Because he's the king who went to the desert. The king who went to the suffering of the cross, so that he could win a people for himself. God may be blessing you in the wilderness right now more than he ever could in the temple and the palace. Because he loves you and he knows what's best for you. And one day he'll take you to be with him.